back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. I'm your host each week. You may recognize my face or my voice as the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast on leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. About 12 feet to my right stands that studio where twice weekly we tape and release interviews on Tuesdays and Fridays with Famous best-selling authors, researchers, business titans, celebrities, all focused on the topic of leadership. And now six years and 350 episodes into that podcast, we learned a few things. And that was it wasn't always the famous Hollywood celebrity that got the most likes or downloads or questions. It was often the guest on the On Leadership podcast that were CEOs of organizations that had very similar, even identifiable careers and the lessons learned from them were what drove the most interest. So we spun off this new podcast called C-Suite Conversations where each week we have, I think, riveting conversations with people just like you and I that have had remarkable careers where we can learn from what did they do that is not unique to them but is something we could also do to build our own careers whether you want to be in the C-Suite or not. Today our guest is Terry Shaw. He's joining us from Orlando, Florida. He is the president and CEO of Advent Health, where he has indentured himself for 40 years now as the CEO in this organization. Terry, welcome to today's podcast. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me. Terry, of course, I joke when I say indentured. It's a rare breed that we see someone like you and I that has a multi-decade career in one organization. Lots of upsides, probably a few downsides. I'd love to have you take a few minutes and reorient all of our listeners and viewers today to your four-decade journey. Obviously, you must have started that immediately out of college, but truly, would you indulge us, rewind to college, tell us what happened next, and then talk about your, if you will, ascension through what is now known as Advent Health. Sure. Uh, Briefly, college was a, a double major at the time in accounting and computer science. I graduated, went to work for Ernst & Young. I then moved to the internal audit team at Advent Health. I moved from the audit team into operations. Um, I had three roles, director, assistant vice president, vice president in the operations side of the business. And then one day our CFO decided he wanted to go do something different. And I was the only guy on the 11th floor, um, only person on the 11th floor with a CPA certificate. And at that juncture, our CEO asked me to be the CFO and I thought he was kidding, and he wasn't. And that afternoon I became the CFO, and I did that for four years, and then our CEO in the Central Florida market became the company CEO in 2000. And at that juncture, he asked me to be the company CFO, and I did that for 10 years, and then we got a new CEO, and he asked me to have a dual role as CFO and Chief Operating Officer, and I did that for a while, and he retired, and I became CEO. So that's a brief, that's a brief summary of from college to where I sit today. And Terry, you've been CEO now in that role for how many years? Seven years. So Terry, Advent Health may not be a household name across the country. You all have grown significantly through development, acquisition over the last couple of decades. Would you remind everyone who's listening, what is Advent Health? What might they know it as in their local market? What markets are you in? And what services do you provide to all of your you know, vast customers? Sure, we're a $18 billion organization, healthcare delivery system. 
Uh, we offer everything from physicians to urgent care centers, surgery centers, all the way through 52 hospitals spread across um, a geographic range from Denver to Dallas to Chicago, Kansas City, and we have a significant presence in Florida and, this, and then a little bit of uh, presence in the Southeast, Georgia, North Carolina. Um, we focus on regional growth and we want to uh, make for sure that we're there for people in our communities. And we wanna make for sure that we live into our mission, which is to help other people feel whole. How many employees across all of your physical properties? 93,000. I mean, this is why I asked this question. Uh, I'm going to guess one of your biggest challenges is making sure that the water metaphorically gets to the end of the row, right? A farming metaphor. I'd love to know practically, when you think of a strategy in the shower, in your car, on the pickleball court, whatever it is, wherever you do your best thinking, and you decide that the organization is going this direction. Obviously, your board of directors, your key stakeholders, your executive team has to be on board. I'm guessing they are the most privy to your intimate thoughts, and they understand the strategy probably never as well as you do, but second best to you as the CEO. How do you communicate to nearly 100,000 colleagues why, what, how, and when because the water does not ever get to the end of the row for everyone, and not everyone understands why you did this versus that. In fact, most of them probably don't even know there was a that. All they know is that this happened. Talk to all of the CEOs and leaders that are listening and watching what you have learned about how to get the water to the end of the row. What a great question. I would tell you a couple of things. Until you're sick of your own message, you probably haven't communicated well enough. Yeah but we have orchestrated multiple touch points in our organization. So my cabinet is 15 people. I have a CEO group of 60. I have a president's council group of 125 and a C-suite group of 450. And then our first sergeants, which is the people who really manage those on the front line, there's about 6,000. And we have intentional touch points and communication plans across the organization down to the frontline leader and then down to the employee. I meet with our CEOs on an annual basis in the spring. I follow that up with President's Council in the summer. I follow that up with C-suite in the fall. Um, those in-person meetings then are interspersed with uh, video uh, uh, conference calls, if you will, at both the CEO and the C-suite level spread throughout the year. And then three times a year, we invite 75 of our leaders into the organization for a day and a half where we use our design center to make for sure that we're all on the same page with where we're going as a company, what the strategies are we're lifting into the marketplace, what's going right, what's not going well, and what are we all going to do to think about um, the future of the organization and what we're trying to roll out as a company. So it takes an enormous lift, if you will, to get 93,000 people on the same page, but it starts with the 450 C-suite members we have and then the 6,000 first sergeants that we have that actually run the organization on a day in and day out basis. And I've learned if you're doing a, a really good job at that level, the message has a much easier time, what you call trickling to the end of the pipe, than if you don't bother to communicate. Terry, I want you to check your humility for a moment. 
That was probably the most deliberate download of any C-suite guest we've had in terms of exactly this number of this level, this number of this level, 6,000 sergeants. Was that a structure that you inherited? Did you and your team design that structure? Because clearly you have faced this problem and you and the leadership team have organized your company in these levels. You rattled off the numbers precisely, how many are at which level. I'm guessing this didn't happen accidentally. What was the theory and the process behind deliberately uh, of course, every company has a hierarchy, but you just described a very intentional hierarchy related right. to communication. Talk about how that came about. About 18 months into my job, it dawned on me that I had a few people who really understand where their organization was headed. But when I actually did my visits and I actually went into the marketplace, I couldn't find that message in a way that I wanted it to be from a tangible standpoint. And we came back and as a group redesigned how it is we're thinking about lifting the message intentionally across the organization. We put in a uh, studio where we can hold conferences and I can put 450 people's uh, picture on a huge 180 degree screen um, so that there's, there is uh, interaction even though it's remote um, you, you can actually see who's there and understand what's going on. We spent uh, time, energy, and effort um, developing a comm strategy and a market activation strategy that I would describe as a bow tie model. We get a lot of input on the front end. Um, there's a lot of mess in the middle as you fail fast. And then everybody on the back end of that is responsible for taking the learnings and installing them in the marketplace. Advent Health as a brand, uh, seven years ago was a $9 billion organization taking care of three and a half million. Today we're 18 taking care of uh, seven and a half million. I think that'll double again in the next 10 years. And I want the, the person who's receiving the care to have the same experience, whether they're in Florida or in Kansas or in Denver, Colorado, and I want them to understand that when you see an Advent Health uh, sign, regardless if that's a hospital, an urgent care center, a physician's office, you know what that stands for, how you're gonna be cared for, and what's important to our organization as we think about you and your health. That was very valuable. I appreciate you walking us through how that came about. I think it's a challenge every C-suite leader faces. It's a challenge most leaders face, right? Regardless of how large their, their their uh, span of control is, how do we make sure we set up structures where people can actually hear it firsthand? They can, they can, they can taste it metaphorically. They can hear it, see what the vision for the organization is. I think it's probably one of the reasons why in the healthcare industry, you have some of the longest longevity in the marketplace because people feel connected to the why behind the what. Let's, let's pivot from that slightly. You are a, what I would call a fairly public CEO in that you, know, you have a large social media presence, very intentionally created. I've followed you on LinkedIn for several years. Uh, what advice would you give to fellow leaders, ideally CEOs or others, that are wrestling with what should their public profile be outside of the organization? You don't that want to grandstand, right? You don't want to be the face of the entire organization. You're not trying to take away the roles of the local CEOs. How have you found your balance there? And I'm guessing you also use your LinkedIn as a communication tool to investors and customers and vendors and suppliers and employees alike. 
talk to us around how you have found kind of your comfort zone there. As the CEO, I've decided that my message needs to be a company message that brings the best of who Advent Health is, what our mission, vision, and values are, and how it is we want to think about um, taking care of those in the marketplace and those that we serve. And I've tried to um, develop my the downline in LinkedIn, and I've tried to develop the messages on LinkedIn as just one channel to um, be um, supportive and an adjunct to how it is a CEO in their local market um, can then take that message and run with it so that it doesn't cramp their style in their marketplace. I never want to confuse any of our CEOs. If somebody thinks that I show up managing healthcare in Kansas from my office, um, we're in big trouble. And yet there's a lot I can do to make for sure that our mission, vision, and values are understood by a wide, a wide audience, and it allows the local individual in their own social media and in their own way to amplify and then to uh, be more specific about how we're living into those mission, vision, and values um, in a local market. Terry, let's talk about your own leadership style. When you are forced to move outside of your comfort zone, you're doing something that is a stretch of your intellect, your social skills, your relationship building skills, your technical skills, you have a computer science background and a, uh, your CPA, so I'm guessing it's not finance or technology, although maybe it is. Would you talk to everybody and maybe give a little bit of validation that even as the CEO of this multi-billion dollar organization, there are times when you have to stretch your skills, check your humility and say, hey, I don't know about that, what does that mean? Give us an example of when that happens to you. Happens all the time. I'm a naturally curious individual. So there's some several axioms that we lead, live by here. And I, one of them is this, in, in order to get results, you have to be able to lead others. But before you can lead others, you have to lead yourself. So in our leadership institute, we teach a model, lead self, lead others, lead results. If you're going to lead yourself, you have to know what you're good at, how you're wired, and how you're going to look at the world. You're also going to need to understand how other people are wired, how they look at the world, so that you understand what you and how your team can come together to make a better, more complete picture. There are so many things that come at a CEO on a day in and day out basis. And from my perspective, if you think of yourself as the smartest person in the room, you're in big trouble. You're going to miss something. Um, I try to hire the brightest and most capable people I can find, and I specifically try to find people who are good at things that I'm not good at so that I can rely on the team when we get to something that I'm probably not as adept at as others. As a self-described curious person, I'm going to guess you're also a voracious reader. Whether that means you're reading print books or listening on audio, it's the same. Would you think for a moment... What's the most impactful leadership, culture, business book you've read? And what did you learn from that you think others could take away? This may sound a little odd to you, but the, the book that really sticks out in my mind is called Canoeing the Mountains. And it's really built around a, a church thought process, and yet it's so applicable to any business. And it's, it's about the Lewis and Clark expedition that actually got up into the headwaters of, 
uh, of the, uh, and they thought they were going to find, um, uh, they thought they were going to find the, the beginnings and they didn't. And they had to trade their canoes out um, for pack mules. And they had to decide, were they going to be able to adapt and adjust their leadership style to what they found, or were they going to just be stuck and give up? And it was an impactful read for me. And it was very helpful, especially during the COVID environment, when we found ourselves making uh, decisions every day that we weren't comfortable with. And we found ourselves having to, uh, with rapidity, do things that nobody in the organization had done before. And it taught us a little bit of muscle memory of just because this is what you thought you were going to find or get, doesn't mean that you will or are you are going to achieve it. And if you don't, now what are you going to do? Are you going to go home? Are you going to retool and do something different? And in that process as an organization, we've adopted the, the, the thought of failing fast. And if you fail fast in small pieces of change and you do that on a repetitive cycle before everybody has to take it out, it really works well for your organization. Canoeing the mountains. I'm in, I'm in. Uh, what's your greatest superpower? Like what do you do extraordinarily well? If there's one thing that you're known for that is a talent, what is it? I think I'm pretty good at reading a room and I think I'm pretty good at getting to the bottom of what it is we need to be thinking about. Um, I'm pretty good at getting input from the team and I am, I think I'm reasonably good allowing the team to move forward um, and to allow that team to, to uh, make decisions, uh, good or bad. And then if they're, if they're great, fantastic. And if they're not, we, we work together to recover and move forward. I want to go to the flip side of that. But I want to ask it a different way. I don't want to ask what your biggest weakness is or area of growth. I want to say when one of your team members who's reporting to you and they're frustrated by you, by your, by your personality, by your communication style, by your thinking, what are you doing that tends to frustrate people that is actually more about you and less about them? Probably I've asked them the next layer of question down at the CEO level. Uh, you have to, uh, I have to modulate how deep I want to run because of my natural curiosity. And if I had it my whole life, I'm very interested in just how things come together. And, and I, my get, not my guess, I'm clear if somebody's frustrated with me, it's because they misinterpret my next level of questions down as me questioning their judgment, as opposed to me just learning what's going on. You mentioned your superpower first among several was reading a room. Uh, a couple episodes ago, I interviewed a CEO and asked him what was the best skill he thought people needed to develop to join his organization. One of his answers was, you know, reading the body language of others. I think this is absolutely imperative to know, you know, what is the cultural interplay of people in the room? Where is the power? Who thinks they have the power, but they don't? Who has perhaps positional power, but who has what Stephen Covey would call principle-centered power? No budget, but lots of informal authority. Uh, right. Most of our listeners and, and viewers know that my wife and I have three young sons. They are 
9, 12, and 13. And I ask most guests this. Fast forward 10 years when these boys are entering the workforce, whether it is with Advent Health or a technology company or some industry that hasn't been developed yet. 10 years from now, five years from now, what skills do you need my three sons to master to have a thriving career at Advent Health? The same thing I'd have told them five years ago. Number one, be a person who can not only get your work done, but, but has the capacity to help other people get theirs done. People who get stuff done get more to do. And if you get more to do, you're going to end up being the go-to person. And if you're the go-to person, you're going to have a bright career. Uh, number two, um, learn to communicate. Uh, learn to do that both up and down. And that's not something that comes natural. I know there are people who are natural at it. I'm not one of those. And I had to learn to communicate in a way that has um, shaped my career. I remember as a young person um, getting uh, 12 assistants in a room and going through my presentation and honing it until I can get my 12 assistants to understand my message. And, and once I did that, um, it was a better message than to me not doing that. Um, so learn to communicate, be a person who gets stuff done. And number three, ask the next question. I, I love talking to people that have not only answered what they think is the right thing, but they've asked enough questions to really understand at a level that is impactful because they they understand the nuance as well as potentially just getting to the answer the, that somebody's asked them to get to. And understanding the nuance in any situation is just like reading the room. And you can start to do that as a young person um, if you allow yourself to um, be curious and to rely on other people to help you with your knowledge. Terry, we both heard this term working in the system versus working on the system, right? Kind of a management versus leadership methodology. I want to talk time management with you for a moment. Uh, for those people who might be religious, you would argue that your soul is your most precious asset, and perhaps beyond that, your reputation. And I'd argue perhaps beyond that is your time is your most precious asset in life. What do you do to organize your time? Do you have any habits, any disciplines, do you have any, any, any time management hacks? Are you especially great at, at um, delegation? Do you find yourself sometimes being mirrored in working in the system and on the system? What would you share are some of the things you've learned that have made you more efficient without compromising your effectiveness? What a great question. So <clears throat> yes, I'm intentional about it and I have been for years. So I've already planned my 2024 calendar. I did that back in October. Um, and about the at the end of the every quarter, I sit down and my assistant and I go through what it is I thought I would be doing and how I actually spent my time. And I ask myself a series of questions. Um, was I doing something that somebody else in my downline should have been doing and I didn't allow them to do it? Was I involved in something because somebody else isn't really performing the role that it is I've given them to do. And 
was I actually, what, then, then when I look at my calendar, I go, okay, was I spending my time the way the CEO of an $18 billion company should be spending their time? And if the answer to those questions are yes, fantastic. And if the answer to those questions are no, we'd look at the next quarter and we adjust. And I do that religiously four times a year. And I put a lot of thought into how I do spend my time, where I spend my time, and how much of that time I'm spending at work versus doing other things. Uh, perhaps now his leadership style was controversial, but no one can dispute Jack Welch was, you know, at the time, one of the greatest CEOs in the free market economy. He often, often would say that one of the skills he looked for in new hires was their ability to be agile thinkers, to kind of, quote, look around corners. The famous Columbia business professor, Rita McGrath, wrote a book called Looking Around right. Corners. When you think about what's around the corner for Advent Health and for health care, employment, recruitment of physicians and nurses, what, what, what corners are you peering around right now that are helping you shape not just 2024, but 2025 and beyond for your organization? What are you seeing that you think other people also need to see? Two big, two big trends that I believe are going to take over healthcare over the next 15 years. When you look at the tsunami of seniors that are going to move out of uh, private insurance into some form of Medicare program over the next 10, 15 years, it is remarkable uh, the change that's going to happen in the payer mix in the healthcare industry. Uh, Medicare pays you pretty close to costs. Um, managed care pays you a lot better than costs. And when you trade Medicare patients for non-Medicare patients that used to have great insurance and you do that in droves like we're going to over the next 10 years, you're going to have to be very thoughtful about how you're approaching your market, how you're thinking about your cost structure. You're going to look back over a 10-year period of time, and I think the entire industry is going to be amazed at the shift that we're going to have in payer mix. And the, and the good companies are going to address that now and be relentless with it, it from a margin perspective or the capital that they're going to have to spend is going to be radically different. The, the second trend that I tell you is remarkable is uh, when you take a look at the doctors and nurses that are going to be graduated um, that will come into healthcare over the next 15 years, there's not enough. Uh, so when you think about the fact that between 65 and 75, you use twice as much healthcare as you've used up to that juncture in most people's lives. And you look at who's being, who's going to graduate to care for people. Our care delivery models from the hospital on out into the general population are going to radically change. Every physician is going to have to practice at the top of their license. We're going to have to graduate more nurse practitioners and, and physician assistants. And we're going to have to string together care delivery networks that today are optimized and efficient in a manner that we don't even understand today. So there's an enormous shift coming in the healthcare enterprise and getting ready for that today will prepare you for what's going to be here between 2030 and 2035. Those points could have spawned their own podcast episode alone but I don't want to go there because I think that might not be very <laughs> encouraging. Uh, I, I, want to re I want to revert back to something you said earlier that I thought was profound. You said you've already have your 2024 planned out. I mean, that stopped me in my tracks. When you said that, I was thinking, I need to text 
the CEO of Franklin Covey and let him make sure or make sure he knows to listen to your episode and the president to make sure she knows as well. Can you go into deeper on that? I mean, we're taping this interview in mid-December. It's going to air within a week or so. As people are listening to this going into 2024, what have you done tactically, practically, strategically to already plan your 2024? Uh, practically. So I know I'm meeting with my CEOs in the last week of January. I know that I'm having a cabinet retreat in April. I know that I'm having President's Council in June. I know that we're having um, a C-suite meeting in September. I know we're having an extended cabinet retreat in October. And I know what the um, overarching theme is for 2024. Um, next year, it's lighting the way. Everything that we do runs off of that, all of our internal and external communications. I've already sketched in the time that I think I can take off based upon the demands that I have. And I already know which um, public places that I need to show up, whether that be the Health Leadership Council, whether that be a modern healthcare opportunity or a Reuters healthcare opportunity, or you name it. Um, I, I already know which ones we're sponsoring which ones were not, who from the team's going, who from the team isn't, where am I showing up to do a keynote, where am I showing up uh, to be a part of a panel. When I say the year's planned out, I I'm really not kidding. The year's planned out. Hey, last question. I want you to think of the most influential mentor in your life. Perhaps it's someone that you re worked for, someone you knew or someone you didn't know and just followed them in their books and their conferences. Uh, when you think about her or him, what's the most profound advice they gave you that's had the most pervasive impact on who you are as a person? Parent, spouse, friend, neighbor, CEO, pickleball partner, whatever your pastime is. I never played pickleball, but I managed to work in the most conversations now because it's you know swept the world by storm. <laughs> Um, who are they and what was the advice? Um, Don Jernigan was his name. He was the CEO that I, I worked for for over 11 years. And he was a, he was on the executive team at Advent Health for the 10 years before that. So I had 20 years um, with him. Um, he has since passed, passed of cancer. I miss him every day. One of his most profound um, impacts on me was his principal centered leadership style. And his book that he used uh, that was also had a profound impact on me was called The Making of a Christian Leader. And I think that book is still um, a remarkable book. I think there has a lot, there's a lot in that for the day in and day out principles, whether you're a faith-based organization or not. And, and Don's ability to take um, principles and run them across a complex organization and have everybody in the downline know how the mission, vision, and values were going to play out and how he was going to think through things before the topic even came up is something that I admire greatly. This could have been a multi-hour interview. I appreciate you vesting us. Terry Shaw, President and CEO of Advent Health. We appreciate the collaboration that your organization has had with Franklin Covey, your investment in all of your leaders. We appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Happy holidays to you. Thank you so much, Scott. Happy holidays to you and um, look forward to a great next year. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.